welcome to Fandom Media. Sean, Ashea, and Aziz, myself, back here for episode 18 of Fandom Media, continuing our coverage of Legion. This is episode 5. Along the lines of the last episode, Legion is giving more clarification while also adding more mystery. This episode continues that theme, so shall we. Narrative. I'm you, I'm me, I'm everything you want to be, said at the beginning by Lenny. Repeated from an earlier episode, sets the tone for this episode. The truth of that statement is revealed, but also disputed. It starts with Carrie, the man who exposits for us on the devil with yellow eyes at the end of the episode. It makes sense that he would understand this, not just because he's a good guy, mad scientist type, but because he has first-hand experience in sharing a body and mind with another consciousness. Though, his relationship with Carrie is symbiotic, I guess you could say, Meanwhile, David and the devil, that's more of a host-parasite relationship. David's such a drain on that devil. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the real joke. The twist. The real twist. The, the yeah. devil is the good guy all along, and, and David is the real devil. I mean, haven't you seen the devil? He looks like a really stand-up guy. He does look jolly. <laughs> He's well-dressed. <laughs> Healthy neck. <laughs> we okay. have heard the term parasite used by several people now from Oliver in the previous episode, for example. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. It's pretty much openly said now. I was even thinking about the way they're presenting the show to us. It's like they're making it easier for us to talk about what's going on. They're like giving us the right terms to use to reference what's happening in the show. Makes sense. Which is convenient for something that has been... Presenting us so many mysteries, so many awkward things to talk about and wonder about. It's nice just to have the right words to use, you know. As well as some actual explanations that we're getting. Uh, assuming these explanations are accurate, which is always a question. Just a few episodes ago, we were starting to be really sure about some things. And now some of those things about basically the entire setting have been called into question again. Yeah. One thing that gets a little more explanation is how Carrie and Carrie Loudermilk work. Their character and relationship has been explained quite a bit the last few episodes. We see what appears to be them re-merging after the injury. He's unable to do it at first, saying that it'll cause shock to himself. But he's able to do it once he wakes up. That appears to be what he was waiting for. So that they're both, they, it seems like they both need to be... Conscious. Right. It's in a way, to initiate the, the merging, they both have to be ready to do it. I want to say that the opener of the episode was really great, how it started out with that shot of Carrie. Uh, and it was a little mysterious. It piqued your interest. It gave you time to wonder about whether Carrie was seeing female Carrie come back dead, what was going on, and then you hear the voices and you realize what's going on and you see his look of concern and relief on his face and and you also see that the machine that they use to test David is still outside. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not an easy task to move that thing back in. Nice touch. We also see once Carrie is merged with female Carrie that he just talks to her, as we've seen earlier in his mind, just speaks out loud and... He does this while he's looking at that footage of David. It does make more sense how he's behaving earlier now that you understand what's going on, yeah. Yeah, he's actually talking to somebody else. It's not just talking to himself, although he kind of is talking to himself, but not the crazy <laughs> kind. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he sees some pretty weird and disturbing things there, which is that David actually switches to the devil and to his child self in the footage. And you hear this weird, deep laughter. It's almost like... In, I, I seem to be that in one way, 
it was the devil, and then in reverse, it was the child. I wasn't sure if that was what we were seeing or not. I couldn't, I couldn't be clear on that. One or the other, it seems that what is happening seemingly in David's mind on some level is reflected in reality. The camera really picked up this switching. Yeah, exactly. We see this again in the attack on, as Lenny calls it, D3, you know, Division 3, in that David actually turns into the devil and is on the footage as the devil and he's in the night vision and all that. He's glowing. No more ambiguity there. If there... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What little was left is gone. During the sequence, Carrie also comes up with this idea of a device to try and paralyze and isolate the devil, you know, based on the idea that this is a different soul, a different consciousness that you could isolate in that way. And so we haven't seen that play out yet. I wonder if that will play out, if anyone will be willing to use it, because it sounds like a pretty risky thing. And I wonder if it might inspire another way to tackle this problem. Yeah, in general, something that's pretty interesting is that the characters surrounding David are all, in different ways, a facet of himself as something that's been a, a long-term theme along with the show is whether or not any of them were real. Something they kind of backed off on, but something that is maybe getting more traction again. We went into this in our very first episode. We outlined how each of their abilities related to David's powers. So obviously we've seen that Oliver has this telepathy and astral projection ability. We've seen that Potonomy has memory work. We've seen that Carrie and Carrie deal with split consciousness and being able to project another person out of you. And then we see that Sid gets to switch bodies with people, which is similar to what David does. Then we have this Rudy character who maybe we're nicknaming Flinger. He can hurl things and fling and flanger, yeah. (laughs) Which is, you know, another one of David's abilities, which telekinesis. So basically they all are together. If you were to combine them all, they'd kind of be him in a way. You know, by the way, one power that seems David seems to have or someone seems to have is some sort of power... Technic ability, right? It seems we, we've been confirmed that it is David yeah. that has it. None of these other characters so far seem to have that. But I wonder if it's maybe some sort of polar opposite, the way that Oliver was in this frozen container, maybe even has some freezing ice powers of his own, whereas David has some sort of fire powers. I that's wonder interesting. If that's, uh, that's interesting. And, of course, the, the one of the main significances of the him being the pyrokinetic and the fact that we haven't seen anyone else use that ability is it means that he freed himself in the first episode with his burning everybody all at once, including the interrogator and all the soldiers. And all of a sudden there's a hole in the wall and the other people rush in. At the time, it seemed like the likely explanation was one of them. That was a popular theory. We certainly guessed the opposite possibility, which is this, that David did it. And right now, that's what it looks like, which again is part of why everything is being called into question again as far as what we're seeing, what, what's real, and what isn't. I remember also being a little suspicious of these people that came to rescue him. Ostensibly, they're good guys. Man, they just burned all those people alive. They're terrible. Like, who did that? How could they do that? I guess it's war at some point, Tonomy said. But still, it seems such this awful thing as a way to introduce these good guys. Well, if David did it, and the devil inside David isn't really a good guy, it it does make a little bit more sense on some level, you know. And it makes you wonder if, let's say, they're all real, and they came upon that scene when they came to save him. They didn't have a single thing to say to him about burning everyone to a crisp. 
Right? And yeah, did yeah. they not use that? No one used that ability the entire rest of the escape scene. There was no burning of... There were tons more soldiers, yet none of them got incinerated or burned or anything. It's also possible David could have done this and not remember it. It could have been blocked from his memory by the devil. Yeah, I've, we know it rewrites his memory. That seems pretty likely. I think that mm -hmm. seems to be, in retrospect, that the pieces we've been given, that's the most logical conclusion, maybe you could say? Fandomedia.reviews. Interestingly, Brubaker, the white-haired guy who has seemed to be in a pretty high leadership position, is found, you know, half-submerged in concrete after seeing a lot of soldiers like this. And he talks about how they had it all wrong, that they had him... You know, that he was more powerful than they even expected. And he had already referred to David as a god. Which is funny, that comes up later. Patonomy says, well, that would make him a god. And he's crazy, so, well... Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so that just gives you an idea of just the scope of how powerful he is. Brubaker calls him a god, is prepared to capture him or kill him, and can't because he underestimated him. Yet he called him a god. He underestimated yeah. <laughs> something he called a god. <laughs> yeah, as he says, it wears a human face. It, he even calls the mutant, and as does Carrie. He calls it an it, even though they're like, don't you mean just another mutant? They're like, no, it's an it. This thing is scary. <laughs> but they also say that they weren't prepared. But we've heard from Melanie that they have other mutants that Division Three does. Did they not have any of their mutants there? Maybe they have someone on the inside who was watching from Summerland that passed on the information that they were preparing to attack and then they were going to trap them. And instead, David went off and attacked ahead of the game. And yeah. that's why they were caught off guard, too. I was thinking that it was possible that they think it's a risk to have David around mutants because he might absorb powers when he absorbs personalities. If he kills people, he might be able to take on powers. It's not clear whether he can do that. I certainly think it's a possibility. Certainly Melanie Bird is worried about that possibility, about them having other mutants there to defend against him. And that doesn't appear to be the case, except for the eye, of course. But she makes it sound like the possibility is plural, and she mentions her fear of them turning David, which implies, you know, that they can do this sort of thing, and we already know it probably has happened with the eye. So it seems that, on some level... Lenny was right. Lenny was pushing David to go right away. You know, he maybe wanted to be patient. He was trying to follow instructions of the other members of Summerland. And we see Lenny coaching him to go now. Don't bring them along. They'll be dead weight. Let's catch them off guard. And so it, it seems it worked. Yeah, it's true. David didn't need them. But I think this was also just a way for Lenny slash the devil to get control over David. Even greater control. Yeah, I don't know if David would have done things the way... They were done. You I don't know think he would have slaughtered everybody. So right. he danced around like a maniac just Very as theatrical. he slaughtered people. Mm -hmm. I do want to see some action with David actually doing that sort of stuff, not just footage of it, because <laughs> Dan Stevens' acting is so good, and we only saw just a little glimpse of him as a maniac there, but it was good. Yes, by the way, I think he did an amazing job acting this episode. I think it was clear that David's demeanor had changed. But I think if you look close, it's not just that it changed, it's that it changed to Lenny's demeanor. I think his facial expressions, his body language, even his choice of words suddenly were that of Lenny's. I think it was a, a great job of acting slash directing slash writing or whatever to create this shift 
in David Haller's presentation of the character. And also in costuming. They had him in that yellow triangle shirt, which signifies the devil with yellow eyes. They had him with kind of messier hair like Lenny's and to show this uh, confidence, rakishness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. David? Speaking of Lenny dressing up a little, we have Lenny herself, himself. (laughs) in a Twizzler bow tie and a suit. How about that? Very nice touch there. Definitely got to give props to the Twizzler bow tie. I look forward to seeing all the people doing Legion cosplay. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. That's going to be in there for sure. I prefer black Twizzlers. (laughs) (laughs) We see some pretty cool visuals here with Lenny crossing into reality and with her doing the flashing to Benny and then to King the dog. And then we see this one single frame of her with the devil's face which is really sticky i mean literally one frame is a fraction of a second and so i will include the screen cap of that in our website post a lot of creepy moments with lenny in general here i mean the scene with her making out with kind of the catatonic david was really gross really gross gross that was hot (laughs) (laughs) you like making out with someone who is catatonic and snuffling and heavy breathing and deep voices i just like the idea of making out with aubrey plaza (laughs) (laughs) she can make whatever noises she wants (laughs) fine i'd make out with david holler too (laughs) david It may not be clear right away, but if it's not clear at some point in the episode, in retrospect, David's been controlled by the devil since the beginning of the episode. That's why he's got that confidence at the beginning. That's why his demeanor shifted right away. Those acting changes you noticed indicate that he was in this state from the beginning. And that leads into these scenes with Sidney very early on where he shifts their perspective. And it calls into question how much David is in control in these scenes, whether it's like the devil is pretty much entirely in control or David's 20% there or what is consciousness, what he's doing during these moments, stuff like that. But the greater thing that it made me think about was how Sydney, I guess, had sex with more of the devil than David or Lenny devil there. And that Sid herself did something pretty much exactly like that. When she had sex with her mother's journalist boyfriend in her mother's body, she was deceiving someone into thinking they were someone else. So they technically consented to this, but they wouldn't have consented if that was anyone else. They consented under false pretenses. Yeah. Yeah. So it's generally a kind of a rapey episode here with (laughs) Lenny making out with David and the devil having sex with Sid and Sid telling this story about, you know, she did say that we had all done things. And this is clearly at least one of the things that she's done. It gets even creepier when you think about how Sid is just incredibly protective of this bad version of David right away. She's, you know, has her conflict with Melanie and just... You even see them together in that yellow room, cuddled up and kind of antagonistic towards Melanie. And generally she's defending him completely, which is really interesting. It has a lot of layers to unpack there in terms of what that is symbolizing for that type of relationship. It's really difficult for her, too, because she's somebody who's for her whole life, especially perhaps after that experience with her mother's boyfriend, (laughs) realizes that maybe, hey, I maybe can't have sex ever. And if I do, it's in someone else's body. She can't have a normal sexual relationship. All of a sudden, she's got that. Even though it's an illusion, she feels like she has it. 
And so it's a hard thing to give up. A, B, it's a hard thing to admit that this person that is fulfilling this thing that she thought she could never have is like this evil thing. And that's why she hangs on to the notion that he's good deep inside. And as it turns out, he might be. Because if if it, the devil truly is a parasite, at least she has that to hold on to. That it's not truly him that's evil. You know, that's something I mentioned, I think it was last episode, the idea that people in our lives are how we perceive them. And usually through some rose-shaded glasses, you know, our image of our loved ones is usually the positive things about them. We don't necessarily know everything about them. Even as Sid is faced with dark sides of David, she doesn't just suddenly decide, oh, well, I guess I don't love him anymore. You know, emotions are powerful and can cloud your judgment for better or worse. Also, I wonder what other things Sid might have done, by the way, like when she's in her youth, realizing this quote-unquote power that she has. Other times she might have tested it or taken advantage of it she might have i can just imagine maybe she like switched places with like a shopkeep in a, a store so she could steal something you know what i mean just like kids that don't have special powers test the limits you know see you, you it's just the way to learn you you try things and if you get in trouble or feel bad about it you don't do it anymore but when you have a special power like this they even said at one point in the episode who teaches us to be normal if we're one of a kind yeah, it's a great, that's a really good line. I thought that really encapsulated this overarching theme of mutants who are ostracized, not just because these have, they have powers, but because of the nature of these powers. They're actually dangerous to other people in a lot of ways. David is a great example of this, but all of them seem to have that in some way, that they're somehow a danger to other people, if not to themselves as well. Who are they supposed to look to as role models? Where are they supposed to look to for insight into how to deal with this facet of their person of their their world and their interactions with people around them how do they learn about this other than you know trial and error and you're going to make some mistakes and you can see that david is concerned guilty you know ashamed of something and sid seems to be also and it's maybe extra troubling you know when you're dealing with supernatural evil right but it's still on some level is something that I don't know, regular people, a lot of these characters, fictional sci-fi characters we look to, on some way we can relate to them. You know, how are we supposed to learn? What how what should we feel bad about when we did something in our youth? The so-called safe space ends up being not very safe at all, and really it wasn't <laughs> safe in the first place because she was transported there by the psyche that she didn't realize was in control, thinking it was the one she had fallen for. And then, of course, at the end of the episode, she's literally getting chased around the room by the devil with yellow eyes before they teleport away in a scene we'll examine later. But we see how the space isn't really safe even from the beginning. There's a red light under the door, and then David just leaves her there. Right after she said, promise me if we get lost, we get lost together. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he just immediately breaks that promise. Jerk. <laughs> Things go downhill from there, too. <laughs> The person that clues us into the fact that David's changed demeanor is actually a problem is Melanie Bird. And she says to Sid, be careful. And Sid says, he doesn't seem fragile to me. And of course, that's, she says, that worries me. That is the problem. It's his extra confidence and this, this boost of energy. And, and and it worried us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember in that scene, it was pretty early in the episode, detecting that he had shifted his demeanor 
I hadn't put it together that like the devil took over or something. I was like, wow, I was, in my mind, I was like, oh, he's getting cocky all of a sudden, you know, a little taste of success, figured something out. Now he's kind of back talking mama, you know. I'll tell you, the second I saw David in that shirt and he distracts Sydney from talking about his past by saying he's the magic man. That's I true. was instantly like, this is shady as hell. Blocking, talking about the past. That's what he does. He blocks memories. It's like mm. uh, he blocks the past. Very clever way to do it. Another thing that's really interesting is that Melanie seems to know how to talk to David telepathically. I guess she has practiced doing that with, with her husband. Um, it's apparently a skill that you can develop. Um, if you have someone that can receive, you have someone that has the skill, you can go both ways with yeah. someone that doesn't have the skill. She did coach David on it when he first showed up there, remember? To yeah. Turn the yeah, volume she, down. She was calling out to him. Yeah, she seems to be able to know how to project her mind. Maybe she just, you know, thanks David, David, David. I may not be able to bench press 500 pounds, but I might be able to coach someone to do it, you know. So I can only do 490. <laughs> <laughs> David. Melanie warns David with his newfound confidence what might come of it because she's lost someone that she loves. Someone with similar powers. Right. And we learned that it was 21 years ago. That was a nice detail. Yeah. So she tells David, you know, Oliver found this way that he could go to uh, another place, this astral plane where he could be a creator there. And he started spending more and more time there until eventually he trapped himself there. And you know, David or the devil or whoever she's talked to doesn't seem concerned with this at all. But maybe as an audience, and certainly Melanie sees this as a danger that might be in the future. Certainly since the beginning of the show, I've wondered if one of the great tragedies might end up being that Sydney gets stuck within David, that she becomes a personality. And this is one way that that could happen if Sydney got stuck in David's astral plane. Or if anyone else did, it would be awful and sad, but they would still be in the show. Or it even makes me wonder about how likely it is that everyone is already in David's mind and that this great tragedy has already happened to people, that there's already been people that are stuck there, so to speak. But building off of this idea that this could happen, I wonder how it could happen, how someone could get stuck there, and building off the idea that we talked about earlier that perhaps the device that Carrie comes up with will inspire someone to do another plan. I have a theory that potentially the devil will be in control of David in the real world. And if Sid were to touch him then, I wonder if they would switch consciousness, mm. if she could isolate the devil out, but then they would have to destroy Sid's body. Ooh, yeah. So I, I've been thinking about it. I... Don't know what other ways there are to really destroy him. Maybe Sid could wear that device and then touch David. And then the devil comes in her body and she already has a device on her neck. It could go from there. And it just it holds him there and they can destroy the body, her body while it's trapped inside her. Which is kind of similar to what I said, but kind of a different mechanism for making it yeah. happen. Yeah, we have some moving parts here that could work in different ways. But I think we're starting to see how the devil could be controlled or... Yeah. Isolated. I think the story elements are all there. Whether we've pieced them together correctly or whether there's maybe more pieces yet to come, yeah. it seems that there's enough there already. It's like we have the corner pieces of the puzzle. <laughs> and we're trying to fill in the middle, right? <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we know the facts of, but really it's very confusing to me, is that Oliver is a diver. 
and that David calls him a diver and we see him in a diving suit, but I really don't understand why he's a diver. We have that thing with his story about fear. Oliver's story was about him getting too close to the ocean. So there's a lot of symbolism to do with the ocean with him, but I have no clue what it means. So Melanie is in a tricky position here where on one hand, she is sort of a leader of these mutants and this cause and this war. And she certainly seems to have a certain amount of respect and insight. But she also is still like a person with her own, you know, emotions and dramas, including having lost Oliver, the person she loves, to this astral plane. And now all of a sudden she's presented with a character who not only is powerful, and maybe it could be an ally or maybe it could be an enemy if they're not careful, but also maybe could save Oliver. And where are her loyalties here? How is it? It's hard for her to make a clear decision. And even if she does, it's hard for the others to accept it as being a clear decision, which we see with Ptonomy when she is instantly ready to just, all right, let's go to D3 now. And he's like, hold on, no intelligence, no planning. What? This isn't how we work. Or is this just because you want to get David back because he's going to get Oliver back? And it's hard for to argue against that. He, partly because he's probably on some level right. But even if he's completely not right, it's hard for her to prove that he's not right. It's going to be doubted. Potomy seems to even have general concerns about whether people are team players. He questions whether David would do this for him. He says mm-hmm. David's only thinking about numero uno. And here he's wondering whether Melanie is really thinking about the war as a whole or her own interests. He basically says, would David do this for my sister? And interestingly, that begs the question. Potomy is the one whose background we seem to know the least about. We seem to have the idea that his power does traumatize him a bit. Because he can't forget the bad things that have happened to him. He's a perfect memory of everything. And it's kind of healthy to forget things that happen to you. As David himself is kind of an mm. extreme example of. Of an unhealthy example. Or yeah. perhaps an unhealthy, yeah. It's not always healthy to forget things. David is an example of both. Forgetting healthy things and forgetting unhealthy things. But Potomy, we just don't know much about his background. He seems younger, which is kind of interesting. He's much younger than Melanie and Carrie, yeah, he seems to be about number three in charge, roughly. And as we mentioned in a previous episode, he certainly has another name. He's taken on the name Potomy for himself. That's right. We certainly do see that Potomy is cautious with people, so I think we see his powers effect on him, on his psyche, in play here, in all of his interactions, honestly. As long as we're talking about Potomy and his memory abilities and David's memory blocking and things of this nature... I want to recommend the movie Memento. I think we might have even mentioned that as a movie that this show has some similarities to, but the central character there had this mental condition, which I guess is even a real psychological thing where you can't form new memories. You can remember like your youth, you can remember how to read and write and who your parents are, but you can't remember why you walked into the room you're at right now. You can't remember the what you're supposed to get at the grocery store, short-term stuff you lose. It's a really interesting movie and to make you think about What makes you who you are, what you know, what you really know about yourself, what you choose to remember and how and why you choose to remember different things. I think about that movie a lot when watching this show. I highly recommend it to anyone. David. (laughs) So we see more of who we had been calling the telekinetic guy, the nameless telekinetic guy. But I looked at the credits this week and he is credited as Rudy. He's played by Brad Mann, who is a twin who was one of the Kitchen Brothers in Fargo. A lot of you probably also watched Fargo if you're watching this show. And so that's pretty funny that that's another actor that's in in Fargo. 
He seems to only be able to fling things. I don't think he has a light touch. And if you think about... <laughs> I the, hope he doesn't have a light touch. Yeah. I agree. It would really fit the theme of them and not having full control over their powers. And he probably had a rough time growing up as he probably just destroyed things around him, maybe hurt people. Speaking of people who could accidentally be destructive and, and cause harm to those around them without meaning to, he might be a perfect example of that. As he kind of joked as we were watching the episode, when he flung that door, he didn't just open it, he flung it a mile away, that, man, this guy just can't do anything a little bit. It's only, it's all or nothing. And that actually, that thought made me feel more comfortable with his character and the scene from the first episode. The idea that that there's a drawback to the power. Does that make sense? That he can't just like slowly or carefully push something away. He has to just completely fling it. It's a, a limitation on his power. And especially something that seems so powerful, I want there to be limitations on. And he even reminds me of a classic X-Men character, Cyclops, who just can't control this laser blast coming out of his eyes. He has his, you know, technology helps him by wearing the, the glasses. But it's always happening. If those glasses come off, he's just blasting everything away. Anything that's in front of him gets blasted away. And so that's sort of the, the check to his superpower. Uh, I feel more comfortable with that opening scene with this new idea of how his power might work. It seems like Legion also doesn't tend to have a light touch. Sometimes they seem to do things for dramatics. Like, for instance, when they're leaving Summerland, Melanie walks out cool as can be in her shades and everyone else runs after her. They're just running with the music playing and everything like that. And I don't, maybe there's some explanation for why they're running. I think it just looked cool. That's my explanation. It was even in slow-mo, like slow-mo running through the woods to get to the car. Melanie just strolls up and gets in. And, uh, it was odd to think about why they were positioned that way, yeah. And another thing that they did that uh, stuck with me for a while uh, was when they're all outside of Vision 3, they all leave, it stays on the shot, the eye pops in. Super dramatic. It, it like... Startled me, but made me laugh out loud with how very dramatic it was with that yeah. music that it has. Yeah, it was over the top, but I'm sure it was on purpose. Yeah. yeah. I appreciated it. I, I liked uh, the way the scene hung yeah. there after they left. I was like, why is it taking so long? This is weird. And then suddenly he appears and that music no, I, comes. I think Legion is perfectly, wonderfully over the top. They're yeah. flashy in the best way. So we see the eye follow them after that scene. We see that he's kind of shadowing them, that he may have been watching the whole time, probably was, that's kind of his thing. And he follows them to wherever this house was, when, which which Melanie says may be in David's imagination, which means that I followed them to David's imagination, which is a strange thing to think about. But Not impossible. <laughs> <laughs> right? But regardless, he then seems to take Rudy's place, either by doing that head touch thing that kind of knocks them unconscious for a while. It gives them a milky eye. It gives them a milky eye like his, and then he rushes in the room and tries to shoot David in disguise. And I think the reason he does it as quickly as possible is because, you know, he knows David is a telepath and the disguise may not hold up very long. Mm -hmm. Something we wondered about in previous episodes, because we don't like to take anything for granted that is at all uncertain is Walter is definitely the eye. Melanie makes it clear her wording previously was not exact. Right. And we see that when the scene happens to transport them kind of at the last second away from being shot into clockworks, apparently they're back in clockworks, which is bizarre. And there's a lot to say just about how this scene plays out. Of course, it's the final scene. 
And just what's going on in that scene tells us quite a lot, even though it, there's only like a couple lines of dialogue and most people don't even speak. Just who's there alone says a lot. For example, Rudy himself is in a wheelchair, which kind of reflects the fact that he may have just been zonked by the eye. He's the only one in a wheelchair in that scene. And the eye is chopping an apple, which is that old classic trope of a villain carving an apple. Or a dog. <laughs> or a dog carving an apple, right. No, no. <laughs> an apple carving a villain. No, wait. Uh, but no, to be clear, the eye was carving a dog in the previous episodes. He likes to carve things. Yes. Now, interestingly, there was one character that was a bit out of place in this scene. There was the person the man- wearing all the clothes. Yeah, the man in all his clothes. That's played by Eugene Wong. He was in the first episode there. My question is whether someone could be disguised as the man in all his clothes, whether this is just some consciousness that is also in there or whether the devil can split himself into multiple bodies that he's controlling at the same time i just don't know the scene kind of gives us some indication that david still has some power even when the devil's in charge but even as he's switched their location in this extreme moment of panic or fear or adrenaline the devil's still in charge, clearly, as you can see Aubrey Plaza is leading this whole thing. Yeah, she is a therapist leading the group meeting, and she definitely seems to have a position of power here. Interestingly, in contrast to the one person who seems out of place there, the man wearing all his clothes, is the one person who seems to be missing, and that's Amy. She was in the previous scene with everyone else, and everyone else seemed to be yanked away, but she's not there. Which is part of why I wonder if it's at all possible to disguise someone in another form, But I tend to think that maybe she's in that mysterious room that we saw the door to, that black door that Rudy passes by. We see that. And in the next time on, we've seen that door again, so I can't help wonder what's behind that door. Also remember, it started off with Lenny grilling Amy, or Lenny slash David grilling Amy, about her secret. What's your secret? I can smell it. I know you have one. Amy might not even realize that she has one or what it is she's being asked about, but it's possible that Lenny is trying to separate Amy from everyone else to get to the bottom of whatever this secret is. Yeah, and it's very interesting that Lenny wants to know what's going on, wants to know more about himself, his own origin, perhaps, which is very interesting. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? We we hear that the big, big reveal is that he's adopted. Why is that so important to the devil, though? I mean, if David is very powerful, it would certainly be interesting to him to know who his father or mother is, or it would be interesting if it's at all possible for the devil to have had children. He maybe would want to know that. I generally think he would want to know who begat such power. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good theory. Like you mentioned earlier, Melanie brings up the idea that they might already be in David's imagination, and so... Two potential clues for that are the fact that there's a tree inside David's old house and there are candles everywhere. Okay, it's weird for there to be a tree in the house. Let's say we explain (laughs) that away. Who lit all these candles and brought them? David has pyrokinetic powers, but when we arrive there, it's all there and ready. So I'm Mm. pretty suspicious of the house's existence. Maybe they actually are at Clockworks. And that all was a dream. And now we're back to reality in Clockworks. <laughs> Clockworks is the real reality all along. Visual elements. As usual, this episode is full of different colors in different rooms, but it's even more apparent with solid colors, I think, in this episode. The safe space in particular is very white, and then it's very blue, and there's some extreme reds. They also do a lot with the lighting 
you know, colored lighting hitting someone's face, even blinking away or coming to or a dark side and a light side. In fact, this episode, I started to think about something I can't believe I didn't think about before. A lot of the images are sort of representing panels of a comic book. It's framed in the style of a comic book. Oh, the colors are bright and clear and delineated. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It reminds me of the movie Road to Perdition was made in that style. It was uh, modeled after a comic book, and this, the images on the screen were done the same way. It makes me think of the show Utopia, which has a very similar aesthetic and is also about a graphic novel. Yeah. And so they, they wanted to have that aesthetic of bright, you know, primary colors, reds and greens and blues and yellow. I like All the it. colors. Yeah. <laughs> all the colors. <laughs> Legion has the best colors. <laughs> it has all the colors. Yeah, we see here this astral plane room that's all in white and definitely meant to seem pure and, and safe. But we see the red lights shining through the curtains. We see the red crack under the door that we don't see into immediately. But when we do see into, we see Kang and Benny and the angriest boy in the world there, of course. Even before all that, we get a clue that I didn't recognize as a clue at first, but the red strawberries, which yeah. just seemed like a nice touch to this luxurious little escape that they have. But then we see the bugs crawling over this, the, the strawberries when you get a closer look. So You also get a lot of really cool aspect ratio changes here when they go into the astral plane room. It isn't always when they're in an imaginary place. Like when we see clockworks at the very end, it is not a smaller aspect ratio. It's not wider. But when they go into the astral plane room, it is, and then it widens back out when it leaves the strawberries, for example, mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's very pointed when they do it, although I haven't figured out an exact rhyme or reason. I don't think they are entirely consistent with how they do it. I did hear one little clip from Noah Hawley where he said something along the lines of, I don't necessarily want you or need you to understand everything that's happening, but I want you to experience everything that's happening. Yeah. So So they don't need to have a rule that whenever it's a memory, it has to be a wider aspect ratio. If the memory necessitates a wider one, they will do it. There was an assorted smattering of just really cool images that were, or techniques that were done just as part of the scene that weren't, you know, necessarily a big factor, but were just neat and over quickly. We'll go through a couple real quickly here. We have Carrie merging with Carrie, just the way they laid down on top of each other kind of thing. We have this cool telescope shot, the Sid looking through the telescope into the astral, out of the astral room. We have this pretty, the projection video tool they have to talk to Carrie. That was wacky, yeah. Yeah. but it was really cool. Speaking of over the top things, that was <laughs> literally over the top of them. <laughs> By the way, I thought of something that little bit of technology is a way for them to have communication without having cell phones. They're trying to keep it timeless uh-huh. and not place the exact moment. It's true. This is a way for them to have the same sort of communication you would have with cell phones without actually showing a cell phone. So. Another another little visual cue they use to set the setting without setting the setting to kind of make it more ambiguous was the fact that when they get into that car, which was pretty much the first car we saw, the steering wheel's on the right side. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so it's like, is this... Some sort of proto-England, or or I don't know what's going on here. I think one of my favorite shots that they do regularly in the show is just showing people reflected in people's eyes, or showing different imagery there, showing the devil in David's eyes, or any other number of things that they've done in countless episodes. Five episodes. (laughs) (laughs) If you can count that high. At one point, we have David frozen, kind of paralyzed, and his eyes are completely white. 
And that was one way of showing him being helpless in the face of the devil taking control. It was kind of like that. No, he was warging. (laughs) (laughs) I think one that was particularly spectacular was all the destruction at Division 3 with the different people inside the concrete and everything like that. And just Division 3 itself and the blue lit halls. They wander on parallel hallways. It's just really beautiful. It's an interesting way to show the aftermath in a way that just shows how powerful he is. It was like, oh my god, he dropped these people into the floor. Like, <laughs> that's extreme. It's just really overwhelming. It's much more effective than just a bunch of bodies. We also see the return of this television motif when we see them viewing what David did through the weird canvas TV screens that they have. I was really scared for autonomy and these characters when they're like creeping around in there. I don't know if that machine gun's gonna help them. <laughs> you know, like I guess David isn't necessarily the enemy they expect to come up against there, but if they expect to come up against someone with similar powers, they've already come against the eye. Bullets weren't a problem for him, so I was really worried for some tragedy. They didn't come yet, but... I was worried when Sid was interacting with Dr. Kissinger there, and he was just being really creepy and pushy, and David didn't let him go, so I didn't trust him, and I could see why Sid wouldn't trust him. It's awful, but I wouldn't have let him out either. Well, to be fair, the devil didn't let him go. David might have let him go. True, true, but Sid doesn't necessarily really know that at that point. And I will say that... I don't know if she was considering it as a possibility. I definitely was. The idea that Dr. Kissinger was the eye right there. I definitely thought that. It was at least a possibility. I don't know if I expect it to be true, but I think it's a strong possibility. One thing that we've wanted to talk about in previous weeks, but we just haven't had time for because there's so much to talk about, are the gorgeous transitions that the show has. Little things like the transitions between memories, those side pans, or from when he's in the MRI machine, the, you know, memory machine. But... Some of them are particularly spectacular and I think deserve to be highlighted. For instance, from the very beginning of the show, the opening scenes, they had David hanging himself and it transitions from the hanging to, from the noose to the birthday candle burning, which was really spectacular and awesome. But I think they've had a lot of other really good ones. My favorite would have to be in episode one, when David turns into a silhouette and it turns to the green background of the ping pong table and it pans up to the ceiling and you hear the sound of the ping pong ball and it it just sets the tone so perfectly for this tense moment of Sid about to leave David. And I really like that. But there's a lot of other ones that are really good. I don't know. Anyone picks a favorite visual anything from this series. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many. I would have a hard time picking a favorite one, but I definitely recognize how creative they are with transitions. It's definitely not just a standard television production. They've done all sorts of transitions and segues and all sorts of ways. They've even blurred the lines of what I might call a montage. Sometimes you see a series of images Sometimes it's part of a transition, sometimes it's part of a memory or whatever it is, but uh, the way they tie them together, the way they tie together the visual images on the screen, and for that matter, the the audio connecting them too is, is really well done. It's definitely something that maybe is subtle if you're not actively paying attention to it, but I think causes this show to be distinct from most other shows. Yeah, definitely. I think some of the other ones that were really distinct and flashy were... From this most recent episode, I thought a really outstanding one was when they're in the elevator, David and Sid, and it pans over to the side to the elevator doors opening, and it opens to Sid having sex in the (laughs) blue room there, and I thought that was a really awesome shot. 
There was also the one a couple episodes ago when David was telling a story to Dr. Poole. And as he begins the story, the camera goes over his shoulder, out the window of the office, and suddenly you're on the streets with Lenny pushing the cart with David inside the cart. That was a neat shift from his story to his memory. Yeah, exactly. I thought that one was really awesome. And then there was also that sequence in the previous episode where he was dreaming and he was knocked out in the astral plane area and they show young David sleeping and you see that star lamp that has been featured transitioning from his dream to his memory superimposed over it slightly and then it going to the memory. Audio elements. Just like the visual elements can be very flashy in the show, so too are the audio elements. They went so far as to completely remove sound in the climax there. And interestingly, they paired that lack of sound with music. So the characters had no sound. There's no sound effects. They couldn't talk to each other or hear anything, but there was music, which created this kind of false tension. When Carrie kind of pokes his head through the door, you get the door shaking, and it's like, oh my God, who's going to come in? And it's just Carrie, because you know the eye is lurking out there somewhere, so you never know what's going on. And you have a bit of a comic mix-up when she's yelling at him something and you don't know what she's saying you can she has to repeat it over and over and you realize she's saying bring out carrie (laughs) carrie and carrie says she didn't come (laughs) like yeah right (laughs) which yeah i thought about that by the way he was resistant i didn't catch what was happening there at first but i realized he's scared for her slash himself he knows that they're in danger right now and female carrie's gonna charge into the danger and he's concerned understandably about that yeah but she has a bat with nails crazy (laughs) weapon The devil actually expresses some frustration with Amy and about how they've been messing with David's head. And at one point, her voice goes from Aubrey Plaza to this really deep, you know, angry, devilish sounding voice. Like the weird deep laughter that we heard when Carrie was looking at the footage. Almost exactly. Yeah, I think it is the exact same laughter. So it's sort of a audio clue to, you know, the the change in personality and the the different being. We also had that weird glitchy audio sound in that climactic scene with Lenny accosting Sydney there when she says, no, this is not the talking place, it's the listening place. It's like staticky almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had the continuation of some great music, some great original music and great music from great artists like Radiohead, Daily Mail, in that song when they're leaving Summerland, that dramatic scene. And of course, we mentioned earlier the big horn blast that accompanied the eye when he came on screen as they were walking away from D3 and he followed them. That was really, they've used that before, so that's kind of his theme now. It's a little theme because it's a big theme. We have a different little theme for Lenny slash the devil, and we've been listening to the original soundtrack, but it doesn't seem like it's on there. We haven't been able to find it, so... Maybe it's just a 10-second little piece that they just didn't put on or something. Yeah, the eyes theme wasn't on there either, so I guess some of these little bits didn't make the soundtrack. Maybe they're more sound effects than songs, per se. But they definitely seem to have found the audio definition of menacing. I really love that sound. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the absolute best song choices that they've had so far was David performing The Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog for Sid. For a number of reasons, the lyrics, if you look at the lyrics, are really spot on, but also that vulnerability is perfect for that moment. And as we heard in episode one, Sid's a rainbow. She's a rainbow was the song that played during their big romantic montage. You know, by the way, I really did like that song in general, but specifically his performance of it. And just FYI, that song has been covered by 
more than a dozen different artists, and we definitely listened to all the different versions of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we listened to 10-plus versions of the Rainbow Connection back-to-back. Yeah, it was a little much. It's still stuck in my head. (laughs) Mine too, but I don't mind. Kermit's was near the top of the best. Meta Elements. So as we've mentioned many times, Noah Hawley is behind this show, and he also created the show Fargo, and he brought some people on board from that show. Gene Smart, who was Melanie, was a central character in the second season of Fargo. And Rachel Keller, who is Sid, was the other Gerhardt woman. They were both part of the same family, grandmother and granddaughter, which is nice. And as we mentioned earlier, Brad Mann, that's Rudy, the telekinetic guy, the fling and flanger, was a kitchen (laughs) brother. Even the eye was Albert in season two. He was along with Peggy there. And the interrogator is going to be in season three. Yeah, so we have that to look forward to. That'll be starting April 19th, and we will be covering that show. So we're about to wrap things up, but let's get into our favorite moments first. What was yours, Aziz? I really like seeing the device of showing the devil on camera uh, as a way of showing who he really is. The kind of the, They've used a lot of tricks to show who's really there. Sometimes they use flashes, sometimes they use little overlays, and this one was more direct, but still indirect. I thought that was neat. My favorite moment was a very subtle one. After the little confrontation between Sid and Melanie, where Melanie's concerned about David and talks about, you know, but his treatment, she's like, I'm not treating him. He's my man. Lady, he's my man. She sounded like she's from an old-timey movie. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of timeless, right? (laughs) And Sid kind of storms off. And as she's about to leave, she, she opens the door and she turns and it's like something's just on the tip of her tongue. She wants to say to Melanie... But then turns and just leaves and doesn't say it. I really like that moment. I thought it was it was really quick and subtle. And I don't know how to say this, but it's it's kind of realistic. And it reminds me of something Shay has pointed out. Oftentimes, characters in a show will start a sentence and then restart the sentence a little bit differently. And sometimes through a sentence, they'll pause, like they're considering exactly what word they want to use. And I feel like it really reflects how people actually communicate in real life. It doesn't seem like these staged speeches are giving back and forth to each other. It feels like they're really saying what they just thought, or what they really mean, or there's emotion behind it. It feels real. And that moment where she felt like she wanted to say something, but couldn't get it right, or didn't want to continue the conflict, and just loved... I thought that was perfect. I agree with you there. I want to just jump in and say, I think there's an opposite school of thought there, which is like the most extreme version of this in my mind is someone like Quentin Tarantino who writes dialogue where everyone has the perfect expression of what they want to say. Everyone communicates their ideas perfectly. Everyone has perfectly framed retorts and the conversations flow really well, but they're also very unrealistic. Yeah. And in this one, they're jumbled and people say imperfect things. And I, I, I appreciate that you pointed that out. What about you, Ash? I'd say my favorite scene was when... David and Sid are speaking in the astral plane there, and Sid tells him her story about her mother's journalist boyfriend. I did really like the filmmaking there, but more it was that I started really thinking about the similarities between her and what the devil was doing and all these layers to the scene. It just made me think a lot more than the other scenes had. But also, it was really well filmed. I mean, that was the scene with Sid shown kind of vertically laying down in all the blue light and the wide aspect ratio. It was also very well filmed. Fandomedia.reviews. That does it for this episode of Fandomedia. Thanks for joining us. If you would, leave us a review on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you use. It would really help us out. You'd be surprised how much shows get noticed by iTunes reviews and ratings. Until next time, I'm Fan Loudermilk. And I'm Fan with two N's. And I'm fan with a PH.